You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, In 1964, Lyndon B. Johnson was running against Barry Goldwater uh, for president. Johnson, LBJ, was president at the time. He was JFK's vice president. He became president in 1963 after JFK was assassinated by, I think, Oliver Stone. Anyway, Goldwater was the GOP nominee. He was a senator from Arizona. And Arizona was just as right-wing then as it is now. More right-wing, arguably, back then. John Bircher's then, forced birthers now, stop the commies then, stop the steal now. But it was a long time ago before most of you were born. Hell, it was before I was born, mostly. Most of the 1964 presidential campaign happened before I was born. I was four weeks old in November of 1964 when Johnson crushed Goldwater in a fucking landslide. Goldwater was a conservative and a military hawk, and he didn't think we were dropping enough bombs on Vietnam in 1964. Here's an unfun fact. The United States was dropping plenty of bombs on Vietnam in 1964. We would ultimately drop 8 million tons of bombs on Vietnam before that war ended in 1973. Twice as many bombs as were dropped during the entire Second World War by everybody, not just the U.S., by the United States, Japan, Germany, Italy, the UK, the Soviet Union. But in 1964, Goldwater didn't think we were dropping enough bombs on Vietnam or the right kind of bombs. He wanted us to use nukes. That was just one of the things wrong with Goldwater. He thought LBJ should nuke Vietnam, and he promised, if elected, to nuke Vietnam. Hell, Goldwater wanted field commanders in Vietnam to have the authority on their own to use tactical nuclear weapons. Even if it meant risking a nuclear confrontation with Moscow, that would end life on this planet. Goldwater's campaign slogan in 1964, in your heart, you know he's right. Democrats countered with, in your guts, you know he's nuts. I think it might be time to bring that slogan back just one last time. Republican office holders, Republican candidates, Trump ball washers in every state, running for every office, up and down the ticket. In your guts, you know they're nuts. Like the candidate for governor in Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, who said this weekend that on day one, after he becomes governor, if he becomes governor, which hopefully he will not, on day one, he's going to ban pole dancing in Pennsylvania's elementary schools. I guess it should be noted here that the governor of Pennsylvania can only ban pole dancing in public schools. Catholic schools can continue to teach pole dancing. Mastriano also said he's going to ban porn in public school libraries. Uh, Even when I was a kid, long before cell phones and social media, which is where kids get porn, not the school library, school libraries were ghost towns. It was literally where we got sent as a punishment. We did detention in the library. We didn't go read or peruse the stacks in the libraries at school. If there are books with sexual content in school libraries, like, oh, I don't know, cutting edge literary erotica like Judy Bloom, maybe they're there to get kids to look up from their phones for a nanosecond. 
Meanwhile, in Colorado, the GOP candidate for governor there, Heidi Ganahl, claims that kids in more than 30 school districts in Colorado alone identify as cats. She said she had to pull her own kids out of their public school because it was, quote, overrun by children who identify as cats. In Washington state, we've got a candidate for U.S. Senate here who thinks she's going to win by suing Starbucks and the Seahawks. Attacking hometown heroes is not how you win statewide elections. The list goes on and on. Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, in your guts, you know he's nuts. Katie Lake in Arizona, in your guts, you know she's nuts. Marjorie Taylor Greene, in your guts, you know she's nuts. Also, hey fellas, single. Goldwater was a dangerous nut, a threat to the planet nut. Electing him then risked ending the world. Electing Republicans now risks ending our democracy. LBJ crushed Goldwater by pointing out again and again and again that he was a nut. QAnoners, Pizzagators, Trump ralliers, just as dangerous, just as nutty. And you know what? I think they know it. I think in their guts, they know they're nuts. Something else that works about in your guts, you know, they're nuts, that use of the they, them pronoun. Republicans are triggered by they, them pronouns. And by the time they figure out we're using the plural they, them and not the singular they, them that drives them nuts, the midterms will be over. Now, I realize nuts is a little problematic. Some people think nuts is ableist. I did a little Googling for non-ableist alternatives and the suggestions didn't really work. Like outrageous, doesn't quite capture it. Something can be outrageous and great. Alexander McQueen's clothes, the musical Book of Mormon, the films of John Waters. Also outrageous, doesn't really rhyme with anything. And some of the other suggestions seemed just as problematic, equally problematic, similarly problematic, like bananas. Nuts, bananas, how is the former offensive and the latter somehow is not? To say something is bananas or to say something is nuts is not a diagnosis. It's the name of a foodstuff that means when used colloquially, when used as slang, that something about a person, place, thing, candidate, or entire political party just ain't right. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro Savage Lovecast, tons of your Q, lots of my A, and on the Magnum Savage Lovecast, a caller asked what a sex therapist does so I invited a newly minted sex therapist, Julia Simone Fogelson, onto the show to explain what a sex therapist does. We also talk about what sex advice columnists do for our readers that sex therapists do not do for their clients. To find out what that is, you'll have to be a Magnum sub. You can subscribe to the Magnum Lovecast at savage.love. You get more calls with the Magnum, more answers, more guests, and no ads, plus special bonus content like our Sex and Politics podcast, where I do long-form interviews with interesting guests like Michelle Goldberg and Mike Pesca. And you also get Sack Lunch, our monthly Zoom hangout, exclusively for Magnum Savage Lovecast subscribers. And speaking of Sack Lunch, which usually takes place on the first Thursday of the month, this month's Sack Lunch will be next Wednesday, October 12th. I'm sneaking away this week for a little birthday trip, but I'm looking forward to catching up with my Magnum subs next Wednesday, October 12th at 12 noon Pacific. All right, on to the show. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-something-year-old queer human living in the mainland U.S., and I have a partner in which we engage in sex using condom for STI and STD reasons, but also as birth control because I'm not on 
pill or IUD, but I really want his cum inside of me. And I was wondering if he, he could like come into a jar and then wait a certain amount of time for the cum to die and not be like active. And then we could use his cum as lube when we have sex with a condom. I don't know if that's possible in a way where I like don't get pregnant. And if so, how long do I have to wait to have his cum inside of me? Well, I Googled that for you and it turns out sperm can only live outside the body for about 15 to 30 minutes. So if your primary concern is impregnation, your boyfriend can come in a jar. You can set that jar out. Maybe he should come in a wide jar so more of the sperm or the semen is exposed to the air and the light and wait 30 minutes, wait 45 minutes to be on the safe side. I don't have the time right now to Google for you how long you have to let that sperm sit out for gonorrhea or syphilis or chlamydia or other sexually transmitted infections that you might be worried about, HIV, for those also to pass away, for those to die, for those not, for those bacteria and viruses not to be a threat. But if pregnancy is your primary concern and they're the reason why you're using condoms, yeah, I Google that for you. You have to wait about 15 to 30 minutes, I would urge you to wait 45 minutes to be on the safe side, and then you can use his cum as lube. Yeah, you can do that. You can have his cum inside you. You could also have his cum inside you if he went and got a vasectomy. I'm saying that because Nancy would want me to say that. Hi, Dan. Midwestern woman with two kids and a sexless marriage calling for an update. I moved out for two weeks and couldn't bear being away from my kids. It was truly painful. So I moved back in with a goal to try to make things work. I've been seeing a sex therapist, and I hope to begin to find ways of seeing my husband as sexual and one that I can enjoy again sexually. As of now, the thought still makes me cringe. Last year, I mentioned open up, opening up our marriage, and after reading and listening and educating ourselves on what that would mean, when it really came down to it, he backpedaled. In May, before I moved back in, I did say that having an open relationship would be something that, for me, is the price of admission. But since then, I've been absolutely dreading bringing it back up. One, because I don't want to be denied again. And two, I'm afraid he'll put a contingency on it. Sex with him first before sex with anyone else, which I'm not sure I can physically do. I'm stuck again, and I'd love your advice. You already issued an ultimatum to your husband. You told him that you required the relationship to be open or you weren't moving back in. Presumably, he wanted you to move back in and he agreed to those terms. So in a sense, well, not in a sense, in actuality, in reality, you already have his permission. You already have his consent for this relationship now, your marriage, to be sexually open you can and perhaps should be sportsmanlike of you to remind him if you're going to go start fucking somebody else that you have his consent to go fuck other people and he has your consent to go fuck other people. You are no longer expecting, at least at the moment, sex from each other, but you're also no longer an impediment to him seeking sex with other people, nor do you view him as an impediment to you seeking sex with other people. 
if he slaps a contingency on it, if he says, okay, okay, we can open the relationship, you can fuck other people, but you have to start fucking me first. Well, I guess you could go to your sex therapist and say, what magic pill can I take to make me want to fuck my husband? What magic words can you, sex therapist, say that are going to make me want to fuck my husband? But there ain't no magic pill and there ain't no magic words. If you're physically repulsed by your husband and have been for a long time, you're probably going to stay there. You're probably never going to see him as, well, he's sexual. He's still a sexual being. You're never going to see him as somebody that you want to have sex with. That doesn't mean you can't or shouldn't see him as a sexual being, even if you don't want to fuck him. One last argument you could use with your husband is however long this marriage has been sexless, you saw him as not sex and you're currently not attracted to him. Be honest. You moved the fuck out. Seems like this is a time and moved the fuck back in. Seems like this is a time when you can risk a little brutal honesty. It was a sexless relationship, a sexless marriage. You stopped seeing him as sexual. You stopped being able to conceive of you two being intimate. And right now, what he represents to you erotically in your imagination is all the reasons you can't. He is a block. Maybe if you were fucking other people, if you were free to fuck other people, the quote unquote responsibility of having to fuck him would be less of a lady boner killer than it seems to be right now. And I say, maybe not necessarily so that you're going to go fuck other people and suddenly want to fuck your husband again. But that may be the last thing you haven't tried. That may be your final Hail Mary pass. And seems to me that if you've been in a sexless relationship for a long time, you moved out because of it, you moved back in on the condition that he agreed that you could open the relationship. Seems to me that you and your husband, maybe instead of you seeing a sex therapist who's going to twiddle all the knobs and somehow magically make you want to fuck your husband again, that what you two should be doing is having a conversation right now about adjusting your expectations and recognizing, admitting to each other what your marriage is, which is companionate perhaps high conflict companionate right now because of the moving out and the ultimatums and the moving back in and the, you know, the anger and the the resentment that's built up over time. But if you can adjust your expectations, if you're no longer expecting sex from him, he's no longer expecting sex from you, but neither of you is expected to live without sex anymore. Maybe it'll become a low conflict companionate marriage. Maybe you'll come to enjoy each other's, company again, but renegotiating the terms of your commitment to your husband so that it's companionate and low conflict uh, still doesn't mean you're going to want to fuck him. But yeah, who knows? Maybe once you're getting it elsewhere, you'll be a little bit more excited about maybe occasionally getting it at home too. Hi, Dan. Uh, I've got a simple terminology question that I'd, I'd be curious to hear your take on. Most people know, as far as I know, that, you know, what, uh, you know, what a versatile, you know, a verse or a switch is, you know, someone who, uh, you know, who's sometimes top, sometimes bottom, at least last I checked, verse and switch mean basically the same thing. But is there a special term for someone who kind of goes between traditional top and service top? Does that person just, just say, you know, I'm a top and I have moods? Is there, is it a variation on verse? Does it have its own term? Should it have its own term? I think there are too many terms and that we should declare some sort of moratorium moratorium and maybe not cook up 
any more terms for, I don't know, next five or 10 years. I also think, I also know that you're wrong, that verse and switch don't mean exactly the same thing. People who I think, uh, I know, it's obvious you're talking about kink here. You're talking about topping and bottoming in a kink context, but people use verse who are completely vanilla. People use verse to mean they can top during anal intercourse or they can bottom during anal intercourse. When people talk about being switches, they're talking about topping and bottoming, switching between topping and bottoming during kink or DS or BDSM relationships or hookups or playdates or scenes. So a switch is somebody who sometimes enjoys bottoming, subbing uh, for, you know, because they vibe with somebody more as a sub, sometimes enjoys topping because they vibe with somebody as a dom. You meet a lot of people out there who are like switches who like to dominate guys who are younger than they are and like to submit to guys who are older than they are. Switches. A top who is sometimes a top and sometimes a service top. Well, that's just a top who's in negotiation with a bottom. Some bottoms want the top to take them on a ride and want to submit to the top's desires and really get off on the top doing what the top wants with them. That's also what the sub wants. That's the magic ingredient. The top and the bottom, the dom and the sub are figuring out where their overlap is and rolling with it. And it can be the case that somebody as a sub really vibes with the dom being completely in charge and doing, you know, within certain pre-negotiated limits or within certain pre-negotiated boundaries, whatever the top wants. That same top, that same person can meet a sub who only wants the top to do very specific certain things and is looking for someone who's a service top, who's going to hit those marks, not really roll anything out or challenge the sub to endure or get through anything on the way to the things that the sub enjoys most, the rewards the sub enjoys most. Is that person a switch in the same sense, somebody who sometimes tops, sometimes bottoms is a switch or verse in the same way, somebody who with vanilla gay sex sometimes gets fucked and sometimes fucks? No, I don't think so. I think that's just a top and that's what tops do. Tops bind subs, they negotiate with subs and then they create scenes together with the sub that work for both of them. Sometimes those scenes are dictated almost entirely by the sub's desires. Sometimes the sub's desire is for the top to dictate the terms of those scenes. So I guess what I see here is a distinction that you're attempting to make that doesn't have much of a difference and therefore does not need its own term, its own name, or its own fucking pride flag. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 31-year-old female calling with a question regarding when is it ethical to fuck another woman's husband? So for context, I was in an abusive relationship for five years and left about six months ago. I'm a graduate student with a really rigorous schedule, and I don't have the time that a partner deserves to date. And I also just frankly don't think I'm in good enough working order yet, but I'm working really hard on it. The man in question is much, much older than I am. I met him while I was working COVID in a critical care unit. He's a physician and we had a brief but very intense 
relationship where honestly the best sex that I've ever had in my life. His wife knows that he has never successfully sustained a monogamous relationship. They never discussed monogamy. He has complete autonomy in his schedule. She doesn't ask him where he's going or why. She never goes into his phone. They have entirely separate and private lives, but they cohabitate. And she has, she's a widow and she has two teenage children that live with them. He married her very quickly after we stopped sleeping together, has a habit of being a caretaker and is unsatisfied in his marriage, but feels obligated to help her and care for these children with her, which is classic him. So my question is, is it okay for me to fuck him? I really, really want to. I can make a reasonable argument about how it's keeping him sane enough to be married. I can also make a a really reasonable argument about a reasonable assumption on his wife's part of monogamy. And I feel very conflicted and I do not want to disrupt the home that these children are now in. They've been through way too much. I guess I'm a little confused about all these overlapping timelines. You met this man this doctor, during COVID, you're six months out of an abusive relationship and he married this other woman and became a step-parent to her teenage children after you two stopped fucking. It's a little hard to pinpoint exactly when all of this went down. Were you fucking him years ago at the height of COVID? You say you met, uh, you know, in, in a caretaker role during COVID and then he married this woman when you two stopped fucking years ago and then later you got out of an abusive relationship and now you're thinking about fucking him again and wanting my permission to do so. Look, you say you're not in good working order and you want to fuck this guy. Are you close enough to good working order that you can refrain from catching feelings from this guy? Are you close enough to good working order that you can not want more than he can give you. You say that you're working on yourself, working on getting closer to good working order when you imagine what it is you're going to want when you're in good working order, when you fully recovered from the abusive relationship you only recently got out of, when you imagine you know, a couple of years into the future if you've been fucking this guy for the next two or three years, are you going to want a committed relationship with him? Are you going to want more from him than he can give you? If you think that you might, and you're at all concerned about this woman, his current wife, and her kids who come to depend on him as a stepfather, well then, obviously, you shouldn't fuck him. If this much older man isn't somebody that you want as a husband ever, even if he was available to you, okay, well then you could go ahead and fuck him. Also, everything that you know about his relationship, I assume you know from him that he has complete autonomy, that he and his wife live pretty much separate lives, that she knew going in, that he'd never honored successfully a monogamous commitment the implication there is that he's made another monogamous commitment only, you know, asterisk. She knows that monogamy, a degree of difficulty that presents for him that he's never managed to pull off. And it might be irrational of her to expect that he will manage to be monogamous 
with and for her after failing to be monogamous in every other relationship he's ever been in. But with so many straight couples, monogamy is the default setting. It's unquestioned. So even knowing everything that you know about their relationship, if he's telling you the truth about their relationship, even if you think, looking at him and who he is, that it would have been irrational for her to expect monogamy from him, if they didn't have a conversation about it, it may very well be what she expects from him. She may not be, you say, going through his phone, looking for evidence that he's cheating. She may not want to know if he cheats, but she would still, highly likely, she would still probably regard him fucking around with somebody else, somebody named you, she would regard that as a betrayal. And some people can coast through life knowing that maybe their partner cheated on them, but knowing for sure their partner cheated on them and their partner knowing that they know that somehow that emotional reality can be something that they can't live with. They can't stay in the marriage knowing what they suspected, you know, knowing that it happened and knowing that their partner knows that they know. For some people, that's the gotta-get-out-of-this-marriage predicament. So just because she's not looking for evidence doesn't mean she would be unbothered by evidence if it came looking for her. And sometimes evidence of an infidelity comes looking for a spouse who doesn't want to find it. A busybody neighbor, a co-worker, one of his kids, teenager, gets wind of it somehow, He's indiscreet and it gets back to the wife, even if she wasn't looking for the evidence, even if you didn't go to her because you suddenly decided you wanted to be married to this man and you wanted to stage a big bananas confrontation. It could blow her life up and it could blow yours up if you get to a place where you realize you've fallen in love with this guy after fucking him for years and having the best sex of your life with this older doctor for years and years. It could fuck your life up and set you back if in two or three years you want this man to marry you and he chooses, the woman he already chose, the woman he married, chooses to stay with her over ending that marriage and marrying you. If that's something that you ever want, and it might not be something that you ever want. Honest to God, if you can answer that question honestly, and the answer is no, you would never want to be married to this man. You would never want to be Queen of England, you would always want to be the side piece. <laughs> then I guess you could go ahead and not fuck him, but go ahead and resume fucking him. Hi, Dan. I'm a 55-year-old straight cis man living in the UK. I have been in a fantastic long-distance relationship for nearly 10 years with a smart, funny, beautiful and very sexy woman who's everything I could ever wish for. There has always been an incredible sexual chemistry between us. Both of us feel that we have found what we always dreamed of sexually, but have never had before. We've always been loving, playful, energetic and dirty, and willing to experiment sexually within our committed monogamous relationship. We've always talked about everything, and fantasised and fucked and made love together beautifully. Then, three years ago, my partner was struck down by Functional Neurological Disorder, or FND, which has left her in constant chronic physical pain. This, of course, has totally changed our sex life. I'm amazed that she still wants sex at all, but she doesn't want to give up on it. She wants whatever physical pleasure she can still get, and she wants to please me. She feels bad that she can't always give me what I want. 
There's never any pressure, but I would be lying if I'd said I didn't miss her terribly. We both feel cheated and sad. We're still able to be intimate and we have been able to find a couple of safe positions that work for her, but we have had to give up much of our repertoire in bed. I can still pleasure her with my tongue, my fingers, and gently with my cock. And she can still enjoy it, and can still reach orgasm, but I have to be really slow and careful. Sometimes coming can trigger an FND reaction for her. Being careful also means I'm not able to relax like I want to. I'm constantly monitoring, so I often lose arousal. I love giving her pleasure, but she finds it really hard to hold any physical position for long without pain and can't wank or suck me for more than a few moments. My sexual release is now limited to masturbation while she talks dirty to me. I miss being able to let go and lose myself in her. We've also lost the power play we used to enjoy, switching between dominant and submissive roles, as she can no longer dominate me physically or take the lead. We're a strong, loving couple, but we're becoming resigned to things never being the same again, and we feel sad at the prospect of losing this part of our lives together. Have you got any advice for us, Dan? I would particularly like your advice on how I can become more comfortable being 100% the assertive, dominant, but gentle leading partner, as this is a role that doesn't always turn me on. What advice have you got for couples who find that long-term illness gets in the way of their sex life? I was talking to an old friend, an older friend, older guy married to another guy for a very long time. Recently, we were catching up on the phone and he told me that he had a little project that he was doing at the house that weekend and I asked him what it was and he said he was putting the bolts in the ceiling to hang a sling. And I was surprised because I've known these guys for a while. I know them to be pretty vanilla and a sling. It's kind of, you know, a major sex toy. They're expensive, a major investment. And someone who has a sling in their house, you just assume that they're very kinky. Owning a sling, having the hooks in the ceiling to hang a sling, that's hardcore. And I asked my friend, oh, wow, I guess you guys are getting into kink. And he said, no, I can't fuck in bed anymore because to be in the position, he's the top in the relationship, to be in the position where he does the fucking is hurting his hips. He can't be in that position anymore. And they had to be creative about solving that problem. His inability, his physical inability to assume the positions that they regularly assumed when they had anal intercourse was a problem that they had to solve. And they solved it together by doing something that they never thought they would do, which was get online, go to a BDSM shop uh, and buy, you know, spend a thousand dollars on a really high quality sling because he can stand and fuck. He can't kneel squat, uh, you know, missionary position, anal fuck in bed anymore. It's not as big a problem as the problem you and your partner are facing. But what they've done is get creative about controlling for it. And they did something about it. And it, it just seems to me that you sound like such a sweet, thoughtful, loving person. And your partner is lucky to have you. And you're doing everything that is possible to maintain your sex life. Just as my friends who got the sling, you know, age, physical limitations, growing physical limitations, reshaped their sex life in a way that 
made it sound a little kinkier and more hardcore than I thought they were. But they didn't get the sling because they wanted the sling. They got the sling because if they wanted to continue to have anal intercourse, they kind of needed it. You guys are making changes. You and your partner are making changes to your sex life that were forced on you. Uh, There are new limitations placed on you. And barring some cure or new developments or with your partner's FND, it doesn't sound like there's much you can do other than what you're already doing. Seems to me that the missing piece here is grieving and letting go. Grieving what's no longer possible. Your partner can't suck your cock or take your cock or even stroke your cock for more than a couple of moments without pain. And your partner can't play a physically dominant role as she used to when you guys get together in your sex life. That said, a lot of domination is mental. You know, that cliche about the biggest sex organ being between your ears, a lot of what goes on in a DS relationship is about attitude, dirty talk, control. And she can express all those things verbally. Seems to me that there's all sorts of play, DS play that you two could incorporate into what's possible for your partner right now that would be gratifying for you and allow you two to remain monogamous and for you to get your sub yaya's out to get that itch scratched for yourself. As for everything else, as for what's not possible, what's not possible is not possible. And the workarounds, the loving, compassionate, erotic, satisfying workarounds are the workarounds you two have already incorporated into your sexual relationship. And props to you. That's wonderful that you've managed and that she still desires sexual contact, physical intimacy, physical pleasure, despite the FND. And you guys have obviously done everything you can. And the missing piece here, the reason you're calling for advice is because you haven't grieved and let go of what's not possible and may never because of these growing physical limitations. Time is a meat grinder, man. It makes hamburger out of all of us. May not ever be possible again. And what you can do now is enjoy what is possible. And you can, at moments, feel sorry for yourselves and feel sorry for yourself, singularly, about what you've lost. And I hope that's something that you two can talk about together without your partner feeling blamed or guilted or shamed for something that she didn't choose and that she has no control over. Hey, Dan, cisgendered gay girl from the East Coast. I've been with my husband for over eight years. And around two months ago, I ended the relationship because I realized that I wasn't bi, but I was just just gay. We've been open for about two years. And back in January, I met this one girl. And at first we were just, you know, having fun. And then, you know, through time, we realized that we wanted a lot more than just fucking around. I knew that my relationship was like ending. So we kind of like progressed after like after I ended it with my husband, we became like official like relationship. 
So my husband or my ex, let's call him my ex. I need to get used to this. So my ex has struggled with the end of the relationship. He's, you know, hoping that we can still make it work. He's open-minded. He doesn't need to have the sex and all that. We can continue to live together and all that. I don't want that. And I've been clear on not wanting that. I keep saying, like, I'm not interested in that. I just want to have the place to myself. I want to have my own place. I need you to move out because the apartment where we live is the apartment where I used to live. And then when we got married, he moved in with me. So fast forward to just last week, he was suicidal. So I had to call 911 and he was admitted at a psychiatric institution. So this has been a lot for my girlfriend and she thinks that it would be best for me to focus on being there for my ex and just once he moves out and I'm in a better place, maybe I should be single for a little bit and then later on we could be together, but she will still be there for me. She could still be my friend. I don't know how to do this. Like we're already like we are already in love with each other. We're already behaving the way that girlfriends behave. I don't know how to just like go back in time and then just act like we're friends. Like I don't see her as just a friend. I love her. If I see her, I want to kiss her. I want to hold her. I want to be affectionate. My ex is getting discharged tomorrow and I was able to reach out to one of his friends who's going to help him find an apartment so he can finally move out because he hasn't even started like any packing. There's been zero progress, zero progress. He hasn't even started looking for apartments I want to be gentle with him because, you know, he's in a really dark place. I want to be supportive at the same time. I want to move on with my life. And I don't know how to do this and make this work. What should we do? By we, I mean me and my girlfriend. Should we just stop talking cold turkey until I'm like, until he's actually moved out and I'm in a place where I can fully focus on her? Because like, I mean, I'm focusing on him because I'm concerned for him, like, in his life. But I have no interest on getting back with him. And, you know, he still calls me babe. He's still very much in denial. And I'm just trying to move on with my life. This may be a little from left field, but I think your girlfriend, and let's call her your ex-girlfriend since she broke up with you, is attempting to model for you the behavior she'd like to see from you. She's watching your marriage end. She's watching you end your marriage. And you've been with your husband for more than eight years, married for more than eight years. I assume you were dating for some significant period of time prior to that marriage. And your husband is taking the end of your marriage, you coming out as a lesbian, as gay, not as bi, and you telling him you're not interested in a companion arrangement and staying married to him and being with him at all, your girlfriend is watching you rush that process. And she may be projecting herself into a future where you're dumping her or you guys are leaving each other. Most relationships end. You know, someone you might want to be with now might look at how you're treating the person you're currently with, the person you're leaving them for, and start to have doubts about you. I think that's what's going on here. You told your husband two months ago, and he's not your ex yet. You're still married to him. He's still your husband. You told him two months ago 
that you are leaving him, that you want him to move out, that you don't love him, that maybe you never loved him and couldn't love him, and that you aren't interested in a companionate marriage or anything. And his marriage is ending. He's losing his place to live. He's probably losing a lot of his identity that's wrapped up in the two of you as a couple. And uh, eight weeks is a kind of rushed schedule, particularly if he's taking it as hard as he's taking it. Now, if he's having a mental health crisis, and this isn't a tantrum, it is an attempt to control you or force you to change your mind by, in a sense, taking himself hostage. If he's really in crisis, your girlfriend might want to see more compassion from you for your husband. You've been seeing your girlfriend or your ex-girlfriend, let's call her your ex because she did end your relationship, at least temporarily, so you are not now together with her. She may feel responsible for the collapse of your marriage. She may not have wanted more from you than was possible when you were still with your husband, when she was your side piece. Maybe she's having second thoughts. Now, sometimes people have second thoughts. They think something through and then they decide that their first thought, their first impulse was correct. She might have second thoughts and then go with her first thought, which was to be with you, but she wants to pull back and think about it. And it may be that something that she wants to see is you being a little bit more compassionate, generous, you making a bit more of an effort to help your husband transition out of your marriage, out of this relationship and into the next stage of his life. You know, it's a question when a relationship ends, what we owe that person. If someone is abusive, if someone is threatening, controlling, violent, you owe them nothing. But if someone has been a loving partner to you for eight years, 10 years, I think you have to end that relationship in a loving and compassionate way. You kind of have to make an effort to stick the dismount. Now, I know what it feels like to be in a hurry. You know, you just realized who you really are, that you are a lesbian and you realize that the person who was in your life as a side piece is the person that you want in your life as your primary partner. And you're in a hurry, you're in a rush to get to the relationship that on some level you always wanted to have and to get out of the relationship that is an impediment or a block for you having the relationship and the life as an openly gay woman that you want to have. I think you need to slow your roll just a little bit. Take a little bit more time. Contacting your husband's friend to help him find an apartment, find a place because you want him to move out. That was a loving and kind and compassionate thing to do. And what you're current ex-girlfriend is telling you, what she's demonstrating for you is kind of the behavior she wants to see from you. Like I said before, she wants to stay in your life. She wants to be your friend. She wants to be there for you, not in the way that you want her to be there for you. Maybe that's what your husband needs from you right now too, is for you to be there for him in his life, to be his friend, not to be there for him quite in the way that he would like you to be there for him, to be his spouse, to remain married to him, but to help him transition out of 
this marriage to help him stick the dismount to, a dismount he didn't see coming, to help him land on his feet. And maybe if your girlfriend sees you help him in that way, she'll feel more comfortable getting back together with you in a few months' time. Hi, Dan. What the fuck is a sex therapist? Like, is is it sex work? Is it therapy? What happens in a sex therapy session? Joining me to help tackle this question, Julia Fogelson, a sex therapist, a newly minted sex therapist. Hey, Julia, how are you? Hi, Dan. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Really good. Thank you for coming on the show. So you are a brand new sex therapist. This is true. I I am. I'm a newly minted, as you said, ASECT certified sex therapist. And I'll just say what ASECT is. I know you've mentioned uh, ASECT on the podcast before. So many times. Okay, good, good. Okay. Um, So ASECT is the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And I recommend them all the time. Asect.org is a great place to go if you're looking for a sex positive, kink positive, poly positive, or open relationship positive, or monogamy positive uh, therapist. Some people wind up, you know, seeking sex therapy and winding up sitting on the couch opposite someone who thinks sex is the problem and the solution is to eliminate sex. Exactly. Yes. And asect therapists are not like that. Exactly. Right, right. So why did you decide to become a sex therapist? You know, I, I'm i going to say that I started listening to Savage Lovecast when I was, I don't know, 17, 18. And it, it, I, I really feel like it was the kind of starting point. I just loved hearing about sex. I loved to talk about it. Luckily, I was in a friendship group who I, you know, still friends with today that they like to talk about it too. Yeah, as I I found myself being really attracted to all the psychology courses and undergraduate, and I decided I wanted to be a therapist, and I knew in the back of my mind sex therapy was what I really wanted to do um, because, like you said, like a lot of therapists might not be comfortable talking about sex just as like a lot of people don't. So I wanted to be that. So the caller wants to know what is a sex therapist. Yes. Now we all understand what therapy is. Is a sex therapist a therapist who fucks you? What is a sex therapist? <laughs> that is such a great question. So um, I'm going to start by saying the thing we always say in therapy, therapy never includes sex. So sex therapy is not sex work. Um, but as you said, a sex therapist is someone who is a therapist primarily and treats issues related to human sexuality. Who specializes. Specializes, yes, in sex, sexuality, issues related um, to sex and um, relationships as well. And like you said, like you're, you know, you're somewhat guaranteed, hopefully, to be walking into a room with someone who's not going to shame you, who is comfortable talking about sex, who is ready to be in that space with you. I've heard so many times over the years from people who sought therapy and have a big sexual secret that really weighs Mm. on them or a sex problem that weighs on them. And they'll write me about it, you know, under their own name through an unsecured server or their work email address. And then they'll tell me that, you know, they've been in therapy for years and this thing that really troubles them is not something they've ever talked to their therapist about. I have heard that so many times, Dan. I'll have clients come in and we'll talk about, yeah, this thing that's sexual in nature that's troubled them. And they'll have said, you know, I've been in therapy for 10 years previously, and I've never said this. 
And like you said, I mean, this is a huge part of, of our lives, of some, some people's lives. And it's, yeah, that's the missing piece. But to be clear, sex therapists don't fuck their clients. And there is a, such a thing as sex surrogacy. There and is. Some sex therapists have worked, I think it's less popular now than it was decades ago, with sexual surrogates who may yes. do a kind of therapeutic sex work with the client, but that is separate from the work the therapist is doing with the client. You are so correct. Yes, there is still something called sex surrogacy, uh, where professionals will have sex with clients um, in a therapeutic manner, and that's someone we would uh, refer out to and we could work collaboratively with. So this caller asks, um, what happens in a sex therapy session? Someone who books a sex therapy session, don't expect sex, what should you expect? <laughs> Don't expect sex, but what you can expect is looking like another type of therapy. If you've ever been in therapy before, you're going to come in um, or online now, um, and you'll uh, your therapist will ask you a bunch of intake questions, usually doing an assessment like, when did this problem start? How long has it been going on for? Um, and then specifically with sex, I'm going to ask more questions about that, like what were your sexual values growing up? What messages have you received? And um, we'll set some goals. What are you hoping this will do for you? So it is very similar to therapy and that, you know, the same model here. You know, the other thing that we do is that we um, can collaborate with other um, referrals. So if someone needs a uh, like pelvic floor uh, therapist, if we find there's something with like vaginal receptivity or pain, you know, maybe, excuse me, um, a physical therapist, I could refer them out to that or refer, mm-hmm. hey, let's get your hormones checked. Let's send you back to your doctor. So we work really collaboratively as sex therapists as well. And then in sex therapy, we do the talking. And it's often the case that a sex therapist will identify, I don't want to use the word diagnose, but identify a medical right. issue that someone's primary care physician didn't think to, didn't even, wasn't even aware of because so many doctors get so little training when it comes to yes. sexuality, human sexuality, sexual response, yes. sexual functioning. And so you'll go see your doctor and your doctor won't think to recommend getting your hormone levels checked, for instance, or seeing a pelvic right. floor specialist which are both medical concerns. But if you go to a sex therapist who isn't a doctor, isn't a medical right. doctor, but has a focus on sex as a practice and as their you know area of expertise, they may send you back to your doctor for tests that your doctor didn't know you needed to get. You're so right. Yeah. And it's pretty amazing how much this comes up of people, of doctors not being educated about sex or Um, not knowing interventions to do. So yeah, we can refer back to um, doctors. And I also feel like I'm an advocate for my clients. So I, you know, I say, got to advocate for yourself with doctors. I, we can do a release of information where I talk to your doctor, but like, we're going to do a holistic method of care here. And that's really important because a lot of people have a hard time advocating for their sexual pleasure with a doctor. And a lot of doctors seem to treat sex as, like I said earlier, like a problem. And the solution is like, just don't have sex. Like if you just weren't Mm. interested in sex or not having sex, the fact that you have this sexual problem would go away if just your desire to be Mm. sexual went away. And to have a sex therapist who can call your doctor and slap your doctor (laughs) around on your behalf if they're not taking medical concerns that are negatively impacting your sexual function seriously, that's a great person to have in your corner. 
Thank you. I completely agree. And another, and you know, just talking about medical, the medical field, another department is psychiatry. And I know you've talked about it um, as well that, you know, sometimes SSRIs like Prozac or Lexapro, for example, can impact sexual ability or functioning. So we might be talking about that. And I might, you know, also be collaborating with someone's psychiatrist. So what do you do that's different from what I do? Oh, maybe we should switch places. <laughs> well, listening to my show inspired you to become a sex therapist. You went out and got qualifications. You got an education. There's something that you're doing that I'm not doing. No, I this wanna, is true. I think I know what it is, but I want to hear it from you. Yeah, okay. Right, right, right. So generally, therapists don't give advice. So I, I mean, sometimes I will, but you know, I want to know you know, I have a lot of questions for the person. And often, you know, Dan, you can't always get someone back on the phone for a follow up. I have them sitting right there and I'll have you for 50 minutes. So we are engaging the whole time. I have, a, you know, all these follow up questions I can ask. And um, I also acknowledge like the inner resources and knowing of my clients, too. So I want to know what they think as well. That is the primary difference. Like you go to an yeah. advice columnist because you want someone to tell you what to do. Exactly. And therapists don't tell you what to do. Right. I hear all the time from people who wish they'd done what I told them to do years later. <laughs> They'll circle back and let me know they should have taken my advice. But it's a different role. Like I I provoke, I give food for thought, I, I turn something over with a person. I don't think what I do is antithetical to therapy or in opposition to therapy. Often I'm recommending therapy to people. Um, it's just like a quick take on what your problem might be and some food for thought that then a lot of people take what I had to say to them and go talk to their therapist about it. That's great. And, and you know, one thing also I want to mention is in a therapeutic relationship, you have an ongoing relationship. I'm sure so many people wish they could talk to you, Dan, every week and check in, but that's not your job. So, you know, I could see them, you know, I usually see folks on a weekly basis, sometimes biweekly, and I'm tracking their progress. Um, we're also building a relationship, a therapeutic relationship. There's something really powerful about having a space where you feel safe and can talk about sex and not be judged. And that could be the very first experience someone's had like that. You must be tempted sometimes, though, to just tell somebody what to do. Yes, I am definitely. <laughs> but there's that therapy thing where you have to kind of guide per guide a person to a point yes. where they may yeah. see what it is so that it comes from within them so it doesn't feel imposed. I guess that's more empowering. Yeah, there's an empowerment. I mean, absolutely, if I'm noticing something where I'm worried about my client, if they're in a domestic violence situation or something with substance use, I will I will be directive when I need to be. There was a good example of this from pop culture recently of that of what you describe around domestic violence, where a couple, uh, Nicole Kidman uh, and the actor who played her husband, whose name I can't remember, but he's super hot, were seeing a couples counselor, and <laughs> yeah. the couples counselor realized that this was a domestic violence situation and intervened very uh, prescriptively, you know, sat Nicole Kidman down and said, you have to get out of this relationship. You're mm. going to get killed. Well, and yeah. told her what to do. And that does right. seem to be, yes. it does seem, you know, if you're seeing a therapist and they're telling you what to do, you're an extremist, whether you realize it or not, uh -huh. because a therapist typically does not do that. That's a really good point. Yeah. And I know in that show, she had those two kids. So yeah. the stakes were really high. Yeah. It was a really good show. Okay. One last question before yeah. we throw um, a sex therapy question at you. Where did you get your education? Where does somebody 
If there's somebody out there listening right now who's 17 years old and yeah. hears me telling people what to do and wants to be a sex therapist when they grow up and guide people toward realizing themselves <laughs> what it is they should do, where would that person go to get an education? Where did you go? Uh, first, you have undergraduate. So hopefully you're putting your ducks in a row and getting out to a four-year university or community college and university. After that, you need to go do a master's program in some type of counseling psychology. So in California, I became I did a master's of social work. And once you do your grad program in some type of psychology counseling, then you follow your state's licensing requirements. So in California, I did 3,000 hours of post-grad work partly at Planned Parenthood, a quick shout out to Planned Parenthood. And after that, I uh, sat, and and plenty of supervision. We have a lot of mentorship in this field. And finally, I sat for uh, the licensing board in my state. After all that's done, then um, after you have some experience working in the field, you can either apply or work towards a program that gives you all the requirements for sex therapy, which you'll learn about sex uh, therapy interventions, and there's, you know, several tens of hours of coursework, more coursework, more mentorship. You have a certain amount of hours with a mentor, a cert- another certified sex therapist. Eventually, you apply for that. You know, you're many hundreds of dollars, thousands later, and then you become a certified sex therapist. Let's now compare that to the qualifications you need to write an advice column, which <laughs> <Whoa>. are none. <laughs> The only qualification you need to give advice is somebody asked you for it. You look up advice in the dictionary, it says opinion about what could or should be done. Yeah. I don't traffic in therapy, I traffic in opinions. And yeah, somebody handed me an advice column one day and that was all the qualifications, at least to write an advice column Uh that I needed. But one thing that that I think is similar, uh, sex therapy advice columns, not binding arbitration, Mm-hmm. You get to make up your own mind, ultimately. Yes, and a therapist might more gently guide you or help you discover yeah. inside yourself what it is that you know you might need to do. Yeah. A ther- an advice columnist will tell you, ultimately, we'll though, it's on you. you to make yeah. those changes or make those choices for yourself. So we have a question for you. Okay. And, uh, we're going to throw it at you right now. Sounds good. Hi, Dan. 35-year-old bisexual male from the East Coast of Canada here. I wanted to ask about something that I don't hear about too often, and it is that I experience sexual anhedonia, which means like I physically come, but 99.99% of the time I feel no sensation. There are times that alone I can uh, have an orgasm, but never with anyone else, and regardless of weed or booze, or being comfortable with them, or not being comfortable with them. It's just kind of happens. Anyway, I'd like to know if you ever heard of anyone overcoming this. So this sounds like a pretty depressing problem to have. Yeah, I feel like I can almost hear that in his voice a bit. Yeah, I mean, so generally anhedonia is an inability to experience pleasure And, you know, we often see that as a symptom of depression or other mental health issues, but the caller specifically talking about sexual anhedonia and actually even more specifically ejaculatory anhedonia. So this experience of normal ejaculation without pleasure or orgasm. How is it that you can orgasm without orgasm? How is it that you can ejaculate without orgasm? There must be orgasmic contractions, otherwise there would be no ejaculation. 
Right. How I see it is the orgasms, you know, also in, it sounds like, so if there's no pleasure, there's something happening in the brain. So physically Mm. it's happening, but he's not getting these pleasure sensations or these brain cueing. You know, and I I think I've heard you say, Dan, the biggest sex organ is between the ears. Am I right? Okay. Yeah, I'm not, I didn't invent that. You didn't invent that. that for oh, okay. Okay. Well, well, there you go. I mean, so that's, you know, part of sex therapy. I'd, I'd want to talk about what is going on for this caller. Mm-hmm. And like we talked about earlier, you know, the perks of if this caller came to me was we do a thorough assessment. You know, he, he says he can also actually orgasm alone sometimes. So I'm really curious about that. What does he do in those times that allow him to experience such a pleasurable experience? And when he's with others, is he anxious? Is he having performance anxiety? Like what, what's going on? I'd also be curious to ask about medications specifically, like we I mentioned earlier, SSRIs, you know, Zoloft, et cetera. That can impact um, sexual functioning. And even after someone stopped taking it, it could possibly be screwing with his orgasms or erectile function. So I definitely would want to ask about that as well. It sounds like if you can put a, a name, a complicated name to it, like sexual anhedonia, that maybe he sought information, maybe he sought treatment in the past. If this is a condition that nothing can be done about, seems to me that you would need the support of a therapist to help you process what may be a loss, a permanent loss, help you grieve something like this. Because if there's some stimulation that's affecting your central nervous system to the extent that you're climaxing caller and ejaculating something that's wired to the brain is working, but there's some missing piece. There's some missing connection to the pleasure centers of the brain. And man, that would be a real fucking kick in the nuts. That would be heartache right there to, to, to see other people experiencing orgasmic pleasure that you can't yourself experience, even as it's clear that physically you're functional, physically there's nothing wrong. There's some, psychological or physiological disconnect. Yes, you got that right. And a lot of our work as therapists is holding space for grief and loss. And I'm not, you know, we don't know yet if this has, is not treatable, but if in case, I mean, even if it is treatable right now, this caller needs some space for the loss he's already experienced of not being able to feel pleasure when he ejaculates. And he says nothing works, weed, booze, liking the person or not. It doesn't sound like he's tried therapy or working with medical professionals yet. Exactly. If you've tried weed and booze, it might be the time. It might be time to call in the cavalry and start seeing <laughs> exactly some sex therapists uh, and some medical professionals. Ex- exactly. I'd want him to get a blood test. I want to check testosterone levels, hormone levels, rule out any medical issues as well, and also in the mental health side of things, I want to assess for depression. Because depression and all these other, you know, mental health issues can just really deplete pleasure in the brain. Um, especially sometimes people socialized male have uh, larger trouble identifying depression in themselves. So I'd want to, I'd really want to ask him about that. Julia Fogelson, sex therapist in California. Where can people who want to find you online find you? They can find me on my website. That's juliapsychotherapy.com. And I'm newly on Twitter at Julia underscore Fogelson. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dan. It was super fun. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at Rescue. 
Early 20s does lesbian here. I love coming and find sex and masturbation without orgasm frustrating and sometimes even depressing. Despite my need for it, I have a lot of difficulty finishing. This especially happens with partnered sex, but quite a bit on my own, too. I'm not sure what's mental and what's physical. I'm on a small dose of antidepressants, but I remember having trouble before then, too. Recently, I've been working on putting less mental emphasis on orgasm, which has definitely helped some of my sex-related anxiety. That said, it's been tough work, and it's still something that causes me a lot of insecurity and general bummed-outedness. Another factor in this is that sensation and orgasm are super easy for my girlfriend. She usually gets off quickly with me and as low as in under a minute with herself, she's told me. She's also not picky about how she's touched, what porn she watches, or what toys, if any, she uses, all things that must be very precise to work for me. Uh, actually, on the note of sex toys, I'll add that I've experimented with many recently and found that most are either too strong for me or just don't feel good, especially the quit suckers that have worked for so many other women who struggle with orgasm. It's been quite frustrating, but I'm willing to keep searching. My girlfriend knows about my difficulty orgasming and has been very accommodating. She's always willing to let me take my time and has been open to trying different techniques and positions. There are, however, many times when she just doesn't have the stamina to go as long as I'd like. We also had to stop sexting despite both enjoying it after she came and fell asleep on me one too many times. After a while, it's hard for me to not just feel mad about the unfairness of the situation, which sometimes gets dangerously close to being mad at her. Because of my own struggle, the ease she has boggles my mind and makes me very insecure about my comparatively high-maintenance needs. I guess what's distressing me most about all this is my distress. I hate being so anxious about my body and being jealous and resentful of a wonderful partner whose biggest crime is feeling good. I'm wondering how to start tackling this, mentally, physically, and or practically, and learn to love my body a bit more and my partners without the subconscious desire to pout like a kid about things not being fair. One of the cliches about young males, young penis havers, is that it's too easy for them to come. They come too quickly. They get too excited and come fast, faster than they'd often like to come. But as a man ages, it becomes easier to delay orgasm. Sometimes it becomes harder to achieve orgasm. I've heard over the years, the reverse kind of trajectory, the reverse arc from women who vagina havers, biological females who find it very difficult to come when they're younger. And as they age, it becomes easier for them to come. Why is that? Well, I don't know, maybe it's a physiological thing, a difference between the penis and the clitoris, which are made from the same stuff, but function in, in some ways very differently and are experienced very differently. Young males often also are encouraged by the culture and all sorts of cultural signaling to experiment with masturbation. And they have a kind of payoff, a visual reward when they masturbate successfully. It, it almost acts as a kind of incentive and biological females, women don't have that necessarily. They don't have that cultural permission and then they don't have that kind of visual feedback when they do climax, that incentive, right? And so it can take longer for women to really feel comfortable in their own bodies and to learn about their orgasmic plateaus, their point of orgasmic inevitability, how to give themselves pleasure, how to experience pleasure, take pleasure, be pleasured by another person. Young males, as I like to say, always arrive at partnered sex experts on their own orgasms. And young women arrive at partnered sex in too many cases, never having 
giving themselves an orgasm inexpert about their own orgasms, their own body's capacity for pleasure. Now, SSRIs can interfere with the person's ability to climax. You say you've been on them for a long time. You say, though, you remember having this problem before you started taking SSRIs. It might be beneficial to explore with your doctor lowering your dose or switching to a different medication, different antidepressants sometimes have less of an impact on libido and the ability to climax than others. If you haven't advocated for your own sexuality, your own pleasure with your doctor, you should. All that said, this may be just how your body works and that's unfair and it's not your girlfriend's fault. Instead of resenting her though, I would continue to experiment with your SSRIs, with other sex toys, and live in hope. You're only in your early 20s. Live in hope that as with many other women, your ability to climax as you age will become easier for you to access that pleasure, that stimulation that gets you there and gets you off. And in addition to you know experimenting maybe with the SSRIs you're on, experiment with different kinds of sex toys and the application of them. You know, I have friends who find the sensations from a magic wand, a Hitachi magic wand style vibrator to be too intense unless they're wearing jeans. I know women, they've confided in me, who can climax using a powerful vibrator uh, so long as they're clothed. It's too much. The sensations are too intense uh, if they're exposing their clitoris directly to the vibrator. But if they have clothes on, where they're bearing down on the vibrator while they're fully clothed, not pressing it down onto them, but kind of humping it, they can get there. Just continue to experiment. I think for many women, vibrators, sex toys are the key and can unlock not just your capacity to orgasm, but can really illuminate the path that can get you there a little faster. But frustration and performance anxiety are your enemies when you're talking about sexual pleasure, when you're talking about getting all the way to orgasm. So you're going to have to be just a little zen about it. Enjoy the orgasms you can get to. Take your partner's yes for an answer when they want to, you know, they have the stamina to invest the time in helping you get there. Take that yes for an answer. And if sometimes, you know, it's been going on for a while and they need to tap out for perfectly reasonable reasons. They're exhausted or done. Then you should appreciate the pleasure, the physical pleasures that you've been given, even if you didn't quite get all the way to that orgasm that you'd like to have and you're likelier to have if you can relax about having them. Hey, Dan, 30-year-old female from the Penis of America, a.k.a. South Florida. I want your perspective on why it is that there are people who feel the need to talk excessively about their exes but more so why people will tell you, you know, when you're dating them, which people are interested in fucking them, especially when they seem to have an interest in still being friends with these people, being around these people, maybe even without you. I recently started a relationship with a guy I've known for about a decade, and he's a very affectionate person and the most communicative guy that I've ever been with. The problem is that he's mentioned a number of other women having wanted to or maybe even actively wanting to fuck him. He's done this a couple times, and then the other day, we had woke up from a great night, lots of good sex. It was fantastic, 
but he woke up and then had like a whole FaceTime conversation with one of these girls. Uh, actually, the one that he had also kind of told me was like crazy, and he had, he seems to have like a savior complex with this girl. Like he's trying to help her get his life together, which kind of like also hits me in a very weird way. But he told her about me, you know, they were talking and having a conversation. He told her about me, and her reaction was strange to me. It was very much so, oh, well, that was fast. And I don't know, Dan. I just feel like, how am I supposed to not feel strangely about you talking to these people when you've made it clear to me that they actively want to fuck you? <laughs> is that is that controlling of me to be weird about that? And how would I address this to him? to, you know, kind of make us both feel comfortable. I don't want to be controlling. I want to be a good girlfriend. But I've been in these sorts of situations before and have really suffered for it. A good girlfriend deserves a good boyfriend. And what's your boyfriend? If he is your boyfriend, have you guys had a conversation about your relationship? Have you defined terms? Is it a sexually exclusive relationship, an opt-in sexually exclusive relationship? Or... Is it a default setting, sexually exclusive relationship? You guys need to have that conversation. But even if you've had that conversation and the relationship isn't sexually exclusive, you still should be considerate about your feelings. And it is inconsiderate for him to talk to you as opposed to brag to his friends about all the other women who want to fuck him. And it is inconsiderate in the extreme for him, the morning after you two spent the night together and fucked your brains out to FaceTime some other woman he's been fucking or has fucked. That's just insanely inconsiderate. It's presumptuous too, in the weird way. He's presuming that you wouldn't have a problem with that when that is something that anybody with the least amount of emotional IQ would know that almost everyone would have a problem with. So if he wants to make sure that you're not the type of person, you're not the 99.99% of people out there who would have a problem with the guy they just spent the night fucking, FaceTiming some other girl he's fucked in the morning while you're still together, he needed to have a conversation with you about that to make sure that that was the case before he presumed that he could just FaceTime this other woman while you, his dick still smelled like your pussy. It's just so fucking rude and inconsiderate that just on principle, even if you, even if it didn't bother you, you would have a right to be bothered by the fact that he should have been smart enough to think it might've bothered you because it would bother 99.99% of everybody. So, you're going to have to talk to him about this. You're going to have to say, it's weird and inconsiderate. How would you feel if every time we got together, I started talking about all the other guys that want to dick me down? How would you feel if the morning after we spent the night together, I started FaceTiming some dude that I have fucked or am fucking and, you know, maybe the pity fucking or the relationship I have with him now is all about, you know, wanting to help him and he's a special case. But how would you feel in that moment? You would be bothered. It would annoy you. Even if it didn't bother you that other guys wanted to fuck me, it would bother you that I would be so inconsiderate as to run my mouth about that with you. That is something I run my mouth about or should 
talking about you and other guys that want to fuck you with my girlfriends, not with the guy that I've just started seeing. So, ugh, this guy and apparently a whole string of guys that you've been with poorly socialized. The women they've been with haven't advocated for themselves in the moment. They're kind of like those guys who think that, you know, until they're 40, every woman can come from PIV alone because every woman that they've been with thus far has pretended, has faked an orgasm during PIV. And they just think they've somehow run the table and been lucky. They may even know that 75% of women can't come from PIV alone. And they just think they've been pulling from the 25% since they became sexually active until one woman tells him that she hasn't come with him or isn't coming with him or won't be able to come with him, you're going to have to tell this guy something that maybe other women danced around in the past didn't straight up tell him, which is that he is being in these moments an inconsiderate asshole and that you don't date assholes. Hey, Dan. My boyfriend and I have been playing with locking up my cock for a few hours or longer, and it's hot as fuck. One thing we've noticed, though, is that my asshole gets really tight with it on. Even the next day, it's a little tight. Usually, he can just fuck me no problem, and I loosen up fast. Is this something that is an effect of being locked? Is it because I'm so turned on, my asshole shuts down? Is it just a thing of body being weird? I'm going to toss this one out to my listeners. Maybe there's somebody out there who wears male chastity devices or is a male chastity device expert who knows what's going on with your asshole because I do not know what is going on with your asshole. Maybe this is a perk though. Your boyfriend likes to fuck you. He likes to fuck you when you're in chastity. If you get extra tight when you're in chastity, so long as he uses a lot of lube, he takes his time. He doesn't injure you. doesn't want to cause a fissure. Uh, there's a perk here for him. There's a benefit here for him. If it makes the anal, you know, makes your ass tighter and, that's hotter for your boyfriend. Now, some people like big sloppy open holes. Maybe your boyfriend prefers you when you're less tight, in which case he should fuck you when you're not wearing your chastity device. But yeah, I imagine this has something to do, there's some psychological effect that this is having on you. But again, like I said, not an expert, so I'm gonna shut my mouth and I'm gonna toss this out to my listeners, some of whom are very kinky, some of whom I know are listening to the show right now, wearing their chastity, male chastity devices. Guys, have you had this experience? Do your assholes get tighter? Or is this caller a tight asshole unicorn? Give us a buzz. Let us know. Before we get to the response calls, we usually read some tweets. But this week, I am going to start the tweets with a DM I got on Instagram. Dan, I am sorry to tell you that you have lost two Magnum subscribers. My wife and I have been listening to your podcast for years and years, and you are part of the reason why we felt confident to open our marriage and explore gender. But when you received a call from a non-binary person and you guessed their assigned gender at birth based on their voice, uh, I feel so sorry for that caller being so horribly disrespected. I read that DM 10 minutes before I got a tweet from Michaela D., which reads, wow, at fake Dan Savage, I was the non-binary person whose question you answered this week on the Savage Lovecast. 
All right, I'm going to pause there to let the suspense build. Was Michaela upset? Are they going to cancel their Magnum subscription too? Was that wow like wow? Or was that wow like wow? All right, back to the tweet. I was the non-binary person whose question you answered this week on the Savage Lovecast, and you were very helpful. You really eased a lot of the guilt and shame I was having, and your advice helped make sense of what I was feeling. I appreciate you so much. And I appreciate you, Michaela. And just for the record, because I guessed this caller's assigned gender at birth correctly, a risk I took because I felt that it was germane because I thought it might be relevant to the caller's distress and I was right. That does not make it okay to guess at the gender assigned birth for other non-binary folks in other circumstances. Dorothea Danks tweets, Savage Lovecast, so sad to hear at Fake Dan Savage advocate for cry it out crib training in the latest episode, ignoring your infant or child's cry, their only way of communicating, harmful and cruel. As for the dog, why are you having sex in front of it in the first place? The call was about somebody's dog being upset when they're having sex and I advocated crate training the dog like a crib train an infant. Why were those callers, Dorothea goes on, having sex in front of their dog? Why didn't they stop when the dog got distressed to scar your dog so deeply? It obviously wasn't a one-time event. The solution, have sex elsewhere. All right, I'm not going to go into a long defense of crib training. There are whole books out there about it, but don't have sex at home in front of your dogs. That's your solution. There's a housing crisis. You're supposed to get an apartment just for your dog. Look, we have dogs at our place. We don't call them into the room when we're fucking, but there have been times, spontaneous blowjobs, morning sex, times we didn't realize the dogs had wandered into the room. Yeah, let's just say that our dogs have seen some shit. Well, not shit, literally. They've seen some shit, though. And they're fine because we crate trained them. And finally, Squirrel Eye tweets, didn't think I was ready to hear beloved yet avuncular Mike Pesca advice segment on the Savage Lovecast's sex and politics show, but was pleasantly surprised to not be squicked out. Well done, Mike and Dan. Two of my faves rolled in to one podcast. All right, if you want to hear your tweet come out of my mouth, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And a big thank you to everybody who posted about the show to your social media accounts this week. Help spread the word about the show, and we really appreciate it. And now, listener response calls. I'm calling in response to episode 831, the guy whose dog freaks out over slapping sessions. You know, a crate is kind of like a butthole. You can't just shove things in it. You have to wake it up. You have to make it enjoyable. You have to make it pleasurable. So, and I've crate trained many dogs. Use a Kong, fill it up with bacon, fill it up with peanut butter, whatever it is, and leave the crate door open put the Kong in there and let the dog associate the crate as a joyous, rewarding place. Stay with him. Let him sit there until he's going to be distracted with the crate. Eventually close the door. Eventually lock the door. Walk away little by little. And anytime you feed him, give him a treat, give him a toy, always do it in the crate. And then the dog will associate the crate as, oh, this is a good place. Or just play really loud music in your bedroom while you're having kinky sex and don't let the dog hear it. Dan, that was a wild fucking ride of an episode. Oh, the guy all up in the business of his friend's marriage, non-marriage, I don't know. It reminded me of listening to the drama my five-year-old comes home with from school. I was tempted to just shove a snack in his face or shout, Oh, look, a, a bird! Just to stop myself from ripping my own ears off. 
And that woman who was wondering if she should see the fucker again, who basically told her she's a dumbass. Ma'am, Miss Lady, no. Don't put up with that level of twattery. Even if you're isolated and lonely, get yourself a dog. Maybe the stressed out dog from the previous fellow who couldn't figure out how to close a door or go bang elsewhere. I, I don't know how you do it, Dan. We don't deserve you. Hi, Dan. This is a comment for the caller who was nervous about going to see her younger brother and to kind of have talk conversations with him about the world that he's growing up in and the conservative Christian family. Totally agree with her presence being such an important aspect of that. And if she's going to have a uh, direct conversation with him about this, absolutely recommend just asking questions rather than giving him a lecture. Don't go and just tell him this whole other side he as a teenager is just not going to listen to that i'm absolutely the kid who grew up in high school going to pro-life marches and being really deep in religion and then started going to college when i was older and had people asking me why i believed certain things prodding into my core beliefs but not lecturing me about it and through the course of college have completely done a 180 and I'm now also volunteering for Planned Parenthood and organizing to protest overturning Roe. So it can absolutely happen. It's a long game, not a short game. Give him space, plant seeds, and then let him come to his own conclusions. Good luck. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? Record your question or your comment using the Voice Memo app on your phone and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com where you can call us at 206-302-2064. And in my column this week, why is grandpa posting his feet pics to a gay foot fetish website? Read all about that and more in this week's Savage Love at savage.love slash savage love. And the final screenings of Hump 2022 Film Festival are tonight and tomorrow night in Los Angeles at Dynasty Typewriter. There are a few tickets left. This is your last chance to see Hump 2022 on the big screen. We're also streaming the show this weekend and next weekend. And Hump 2022 goes into the vault. Go to humpfilmfest.com right now for tickets and streaming links. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Julia Simone Fogelson on Twitter at Julia underscore Fogelson. And follow and fuck with the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth on Twitter at LovecastTSARY. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Artunian. And me and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy, we will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.